0: This is They Create Worlds, episode 163, California Pacific. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Once again, we are off to the wonderful lands of the Pacific Coast and California in order to learn all about the wonderful games that they made. Not only that, Alex has exclusive They Create Worlds only content.
1: That's right. So today we're going to take a look at a company that is almost as important as it is obscure, which is California Pacific. They only existed for a very small period of time, probably about uh, 79-ish, 78, 79-ish to uh, 1982-ish. But they were really one of the first real publishers, in the way we think of computer game publishers, I suppose not today, but as historians, the way we think of computer game publishers in the 1980s and the 1990s, kind of this classic period of computer game publishing, they were the, really the first one to set that template. They birthed a few stars, they had a meteoric rise, a spectacular collapse, and then they were gone and then mostly forgotten about. If it weren't for the fact that they had published the first Ultima game, no one would have probably even remembered the name 10 years later, let alone anything else. The reason for that is that after the dissolution of the company, the founder of the company, Alvin Rimmers, really just kind of disappeared, not in any kind of sinister way. It's just he didn't go back into the industry and nobody really managed to track him down or ask him about this time until last year when I tracked down Mr. Alvin Rimmers, who now spends his time making films rather than uh, running a computer game publisher, and got the full story from his perspective on California Pacific. So we're going to have a lot of material on the company that has literally never appeared anywhere else and kind of use this as a good example, Again, as we've done with several of these computer game uh, company episodes, like we did with SirTech, for instance, talk about California Pacific just in the context of the way computer game publishing evolved and changed very rapidly in this very small period. Now, we've talked about early computer game publishing before, and in that context, we've even mentioned California Pacific before. But this will be a deeper dive into the company and kind of a deeper dive into some of these very particular issues that were going on in this emerging publishing field at the very end of the 1970s and the very beginning of the 1980s. As always, how do we start? Where did they come from? Are we talking bedroom coder?
0: Are we talking high school? Are we talking college or just people who went, yeah, no, computers are cool.
1: More that last one because we are in fact talking about tie-dyed T-shirts: I hear those were very popular in the '60s. <laughs> Absolutely they were. Alvin Rimmers was riding the wave of that in a very big way. Al Rimmers is originally from the Midwest. He was not a tech kid growing up. He was not exposed to computers growing up. He may have been vaguely aware that there were these giant, hulking mainframe machines out there in the world, but he was not a tech guy. He did not graduate from high school. Though he did get his GED, so he did complete that. He became a journalist once he left school in the town of Willistown, North Dakota. Way out in the boonies of the boonies of the boonies in Northwest or Northeast. I forget which. I could look it up. I don't care. North Dakota. Equally desolate. Worked for the Willistown Herald. He was fine with the journalism gig. He was okay with that. He was not so fine with northern North Dakota. It's pretty bleak. My apologies to any of our listeners in northern North Dakota, but as somebody who prefers his temperatures without a negative in front of them, pretty, pretty bleak. So he decided to move to California because that seemed warmer. He hoped to continue his journalism career there. But he was not successful in that. I suppose it was one thing, you know, being a cub reporter for the Willistown Herald, it was another thing to break in to the newspaper business in a far more competitive part of the country, especially being an out-of-towner from a completely different part of the country trying to break in. So that didn't work. Just to put a time frame on this, it was about 1964 that he moved to San Francisco with the intention of uh, continuing his journalism career there. Once he was in San Francisco, this was, of course, the heart of the counterculture, the beat culture followed by the hippie culture. He fell in with that counterculture in San Francisco. He was enamored by it. He was fond of it. He grew to enjoy that. He immersed himself in the counterculture in in a big way while just doing odd jobs around town. He did, for instance, lighting for music shows. San Francisco was a hotbed of counterculture bands in that period, like uh, Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead. I'm not sure if he specifically did any lighting for their show specifically, but I'm just saying San Francisco was a real hub of progressive music, not in the sense of the progressive rock genre, though some of it was, but just music that was progressive in that time. Eventually, he was able to bank on this popularity of tie-dyed shirts to establish his own business, to become an entrepreneur, and establish a tie-dye shirt business uh, around 1968, which he called San Francisco Tie-Dyes. For those that don't know what tie-dyeing is, if you've ever seen those kind of t-shirts that have all of these crazy colors all over them, often uh, with heavy uh, pinks and blues and yellows kind of in these swirling patterns… That's a tie-dyed shirt. It's done with silk screening, and I don't know all the technical details, but basically you dye it in all of these funky patterns. And for the people of the counterculture that were indulging their minds with a wide variety of mind-expanding substances— That tie-dye effect, I think, was particularly fun to stare at when you were in certain states of heightened consciousness. So these were very popular with the counterculture crowd in San Francisco, and uh, the business was very successful. It was, however, a very hard business to keep track of everything, because they still were pretty niche on the whole. What I mean is, this isn't a type of clothing that's appealing to people of all socioeconomic backgrounds and all parts of the country. I mean, this is very much a counterculture thing going on.
0: You're not wearing this to the office. You're not wearing this to the (laughs) grill party next door. You're probably questionable wearing this if you're
1: over the age of 25. Absolutely. He had a lot of SKUs, stock-keeping units, because he'd have various types of custom designs, and then all of those designs would be in different sizes. And then, of course, there'd be uh, for men, for women, for childrens, because those sizes are different too. So he estimates that he had about 1,300 different SKUs, stock-keeping units, because of all of these variations. And as you can imagine, that was really hard to keep track of when it came to getting orders together and, and shipping out product.
0: You might think that, hey, you should be able to do that. Just throw it into the computer and, oh, wait, this is the 1960s. Uh, ha,
1: ha, ha.
0: That's right. He had to deal with this with paper, pencil, pen, and a ledger.
1: Plus a little John and a lot of luck. Yeah, bonus points if you get that deep cut reference. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> This was a lot to keep track of, and this is what got him around 1973 or so. He's not sure exactly, but roughly around 1973, this is what first got him into computers, interested in computers. He was hoping that he could maybe find a system that he could use to keep track of this. We've talked about this before, but by the early 1970s, you had a thriving mini-computer market with companies like DEC and Data General. Many computers had come down some in price where they were starting to get into the range of perhaps the small business owner. However, his business was too small of a small business. He looked around, he learned a little bit about many computers, but there was nothing that was affordable for him. So he never actually computerized his business. But this was the first time that he started really paying attention to what was out there. Now of course San Francisco is also the heart of a very big electronics hub. You know Silicon Valley is just up the road even in this time period. You have UC Berkeley and Stanford with their fine electrical engineering programs. So even in this period the Bay Area is very much a technology hub. He had himself a neighbor who actually bought one of the first hobbyist kits. This is probably a couple of years later, you know around 1975 when these kits are starting to come out. So for the first time Al Rimmers saw himself a microcomputer. He was blown away by this. You know, he's not a technical guy, like we said, but he is an entrepreneur. He does have a nose for business, even though he's not formally trained with an MBA or anything fancy like that. As a small business owner that had been struggling with keeping track of his SKUs and couldn't afford a mini computer, he just thought this microcomputer thing was the future. He could see small business owners eating this stuff up. And so he became very excited about computers and started learning about them. He went to UC Berkeley, not attended, but just went to the library and you know, looked at various technical journals and books and whatnot. Most of it was not on the microcomputer phenomenon because it was still brand new. It was hobbyist. Big institution isn't going to care about that. Heck, the big institutions barely cared about that when you were in college, (laughs) sad to say. So there was nothing there really, but it began his quest for knowledge on computers. And he started to learn a little bit of the jargon. He started to learn in big picture terms how these things worked, what they could do, and started getting this basic understanding on computers. Flash forward. I don't know exactly when, but probably not much more than a few months after this. And it's clear that the tie-dye business has basically run its course. The whole counterculture thing has peaked and is in decline. Tie-dye shirts are going out of style. Obviously, they still exist today. It's not like they ever completely went away. But the days of the successful tie-dye shop with 1,300 SKUs was definitely over. So he knew he needed to pivot out of that and find something else for himself. So he made the decision to wind up the business, and he decided to break in to the computer business because he had sales experience, and he'd been training himself a little bit on the characteristics of these computers. He could talk about these computers in a reasonably intelligent fashion, and so he believed he could parlay these skills into a sales job within the emerging microcomputer hobbyist business. So that's what he did. He got himself a job with a company called the Vista Computer Company in Torrance, California, which was founded by a mini computer company as a subsidiary specifically to make hard disk controllers for S100 bus computers. Now, we've talked about this a little bit before. The S100 was one of the very first standards in microcomputing. Basically, when the Altair, the first important hobbyist microcomputer—there were a couple that snuck out before it, but it's the first important one—when it was being created, one of the main objectives of Ed Roberts and uh, the other people who were creating that computer was that just like a minicomputer of the day, it should be expandable with the use of daughter boards, like extra memory boards or a computer graphics board, whatever you could think of. Every time you put a, another board in a computer, that new board needs to be able to communicate with the central processing unit of that machine. The method in which you do that is through the bus, which is, to put it in layman's term, it is the information superhighway within the computer that communicates everything going on uh, with all of the peripherals and daughterboards, etc., of the computer with the main hardware and keeps everything straight so they're not overriding each other and all trying to talk at once to the CPU and blowing everything up. Because they wanted to have a lot of expansion boards in there, they chose to do a 100-channel bus, which means you could have, you know, 100 signals, essentially. I'm sure I'm screwing that up a little, but it's fine, in order to communicate. Not that you could have 100 things going on at once, mind you, but that's how many different pathways you could have connecting things in there. Because the Altair was successful, other computers copied the Altair. They all kind of used the same bus structure to make it easier to do expansions. So it came to be called the S100 bus, and that became one of the first industry standards. And so this company, Vista Computer Company, was creating hard disk controllers that were S100 compatible, which means that these were disk controllers that you could plug into your S100 bus, and then you could control a hard drive with the computer. None of that has anything to do with California Pacific, but it does have to do with Al Rimmers, and we like tangents, so there you go. Random S100 bus talk right in the middle of this computer games episode. That's how we roll.
0: Hey, it leads to me potentially looking up explanations of how the S100 works as a video
1: for you to watch later. Absolutely. So Rimmers was actually the Eastern United States sales rep for the company. They had two sales reps, a Western rep and an Eastern rep. He had basically the entire country from roughly St. Louis East was his sales territory. As part of this job, they were marketing these things directly in computer retailers. So as part of this job, he became very familiar with all of the managers of the computer stores that were starting to pop up all over the country, especially there were even at this early day chain stores popping up like Computerland and The Byte Shop. And he became very familiar with the managers at all of these different stores. He was learning a lot about the nascent, very primitive computer retail business by being in this job. After doing that for a while, he transitioned to another company called Technical Design Labs, which was marketing a system they called the Zitan at the time in this very early hobbyist market. He became their West Coast rep. So he's literally building contacts all over the country at both chain computer stores like the Big Computer Lands and Little Mom and Pop Shops. We've talked about this before, and we're going to talk about it a lot in this episode because it really is one of the themes of California Pacific. This is a very fragmented market we're talking about. The early computer market was primarily a hobbyist market. It was primarily a guy gets interested in computers, learns about computers, is really into them, and is also has a little bit of an entrepreneurial streak to them. And it's like, I will found a computer store in my hometown. So they do that. And when we say hometown, we're talking mostly, you know, bigger cities. We're not talking about, you know, little towns of 200 people because you're not going to get any computer stores there. But you start in mid and large size cities getting these computer stores popping up that are very entrepreneurial in nature. You do get the computer land chain and that is a chain. So you get some national expansion in that way as well. But you get all of these little companies. Sometimes it's the hardware companies themselves that actually, you know, put a little computer store together at the same time that they're doing their hardware. You know, it's it's very mom and pop, so it's very fragmented. There's no real distribution chains. It's a lot of just calling stores individually or driving around to stores individually and going in, talking to the manager and saying, hey, I've got this thing. OK, fine, I'll take five of them. You know, it's very small like that. This is the world that Rimmers is becoming uh, familiar with. All across the country because he was an East Coast rep and then he was a West Coast rep. So he's getting everything. He moves on from technical design labs to another computer company, one of these early hobbyist companies called Northstar. It's while he's at Northstar that he starts thinking about doing something himself. You know, he's been an entrepreneur before with his tie dye shop and he's getting this idea of getting entrepreneurial again in the computer space. As he explained it in the one profile of him that does exist pre-my interview, which I briefly mentioned that was in Soft Talk magazine, he mentioned one thing that kind of spurred him in this is he saw there was a hole in the market with these smaller computer stores, because as the computer lands and the bite shops of the world— started to gain more of a national presence and open more franchises around the country, which meant that they were submitting bigger orders from companies for products because they were feeding a supply channel that had multiple stores and not just one store. He found that the little guy was starting to get pushed to the side, the small mom-and-pop computer shop that maybe just needed two or three of something. We're starting to get their orders horribly backburnered because Computerland comes in and orders 25 of something. Of course, that Computerland order is going to take priority because there's more money to be made there. But these small shops were being left behind, and he thought that there was an opening for a company that could do a better job – of servicing all of these stores. I mean, it's almost like we're talking about an early distributor here. And in a way, we kind of are, though the company never became a big distributor. There's some of that going on in kind of this logic. Basically, maybe I can do a better job of servicing some of this. While he was thinking about all of this, he ended up with his first product, the product that would eventually establish California Pacific. So, as I said, he's always talking to people in these computer stores. One day, he was at the uh, Computerland store in Lawndale, California. They had this Space Invaders clone playing that was just absolutely amazing. In fact, I think the way the story goes is, you know, the guy even said to him, hey, you got to check this out. The manager of the store said, hey, you've got to check this thing out. This is amazing. And he agreed. The game, which was called Super Invaders, was absolutely amazing. It was an Apple II port of Space Invaders from Japan. It was created by a Japanese programmer. He was like, oh my god, that's so good. This thing is sure to be a hit. After seeing that at that store, Rimmer's expected to see this program everywhere as he traveled around to the other stores that he traveled around to. But what he found was it wasn't anywhere else. It was only literally in eight stores in Southern California at the time he first saw it. Now, part of that was just because it was new. He happened to catch it when it had only been out for about a week when he first saw it. It wasn't just because it was new. We've talked about this before in the context of this early period. It was especially hard in the computer software field, in the computer game field, to get anything in computer stores. Computer stores... When they first started, these were places for hardware. And the primary buying demographic of these computers and expansion boards and disk drives and everything else in those stores were people that were interested in tinkering with the hardware. That's what their love was. They didn't need much software per se because they were going to make their own software. It was. Computers for computers' sake. It wasn't computers to run your business, or computers for your child's education, or computers for financial management. It was, I want to tinker with this cool hardware and do things on it myself. So the early market had almost no conception of software. Maybe a programming language to get you started. Microsoft was big in programming languages, though, of course, most people just pirated BASIC from Microsoft, but maybe you needed a programming language or something else like that to get you going. You weren't looking for pre-made software. As we start getting into the pre-assembled machines like the Apple II, that demographic is changing, where now you're getting some people that are like, oh, I've heard about these new computers, I want to see what they're all about and what they can do, but they're not necessarily interested in making their own software. Many of them still are, but not everybody. But the hardware makers are, are set in kind of the old way, and, and while they may provide a little software themselves, they're not really thinking about that market. So there's this vacuum. Into that vacuum comes computer programmers, the group that are just enthusiastic about making games on computers, making things on computers, and they fiddle around and they make a game. And they're like, hey, I made a game and it seems to be a pretty good game. I might as well take it down to my local computer store and see if they would like to sell the game. And so, you know, they take it down, they take the cassette down, it's often cassette in these days, and they're like, hey, I made this game, would you like to buy it? And they'll be like, hey, pop it in over there, let's see what it looks like. Oh, hey, this looks kind of cool, yeah, I'll take uh, 10 copies. The computer retailer is starting to realize that having some software to showcase these computers is going to be a good way to move the product. Now that we have computers that you don't need as quite as much hardware expertise to actually use them, people may not be interested in making their own software. So it's great to have something that you can say when somebody comes in, I've heard these computers are great, but what can they do for me? And it's like, well, funny you should mention it. If you step over here, look at this amazing game that's playing on my demo unit right here. You can walk out with that game today, and they'll point you to their peg wall, where they have a few games and other pieces of software on cassette, usually in little plastic baggies, you know, very unsophisticated. This might be one of only one or two stores in the entire country that has that game, because this is all very cottage industry, very local. Then you started to get, and we talked about this because we did an early computer game industry episode. You started to get a few people that then started compiling some of this stuff, and were like, "Well, let's see what we can gather from all of these different places, and just put out a catalog, or maybe do some mail order business, and a small amount of retail business as well." But a lot of it really mail order. You know, you place an ad in the magazines and have people call to order software. So you get some very primitive companies like Soft Tape and Stoneware and PowerSoft companies we're not going to spend time on today, that start selling some of these games, maybe with a little bit of retail presence, maybe mostly with mail order presence, but it's often not even exclusive. Because, you know, if if you're a computer game guy, you may give Adventure International, which, of course, we've talked about many times before. You may submit your program to them, but then you may also submit it to Soft Tape. You may also submit it to PowerSoft. All of these companies would market it. They wouldn't have exclusive rights to it. By market it, I just mean they take out an ad in Byte, Kilobod, some of the uh, computer magazines developing, and hope somebody would call in and order the product and maybe get a few on shelves here and there. It's very scattershot. This is the world that Alvin Rimmers is coming into. This is just a hair before, because we're talking 1979 here, is when this is happening, when he's founding the company. This is just a little bit before Broderbund really gets going. It's just a little bit before online systems really gets going. It's a little bit before Infocom gets going. Certec, all of these companies are just around the corner. And because things move very quickly in the early computer game industry, we're talking about companies that are, in some cases, maybe only six months out, you know, to them actually coming into being. But Alvin Rimmers is right here, right before you kind of have that model of the Boons and online systems slash Sierra Onlines of the world. Where you still have this very half-hazard, quasi-publishing industry, no distribution to speak of, stuff just appearing here and there, helter-skelter, mail order, a couple of retail locations, super invaders, only in eight stores, specifically in Southern California, no place else in the country. Alvin Remmers is like, I know this business. I have been working in this business for a few years now. I have met all of these managers of all of these stores. All over the country. I have relationships with them. I know how to call them up. I know how to sell to them. I can do something that is more coherent, more nationwide, and is more like a proper publisher. A real publisher. Unlike these other companies that are kind of fly-by-night, maybe too dismissive of them, but are kind of half-baked, half-hazard publishers. Does that make sense? Either that or extremely local. Yes.
0: I tried to look up super invaders, and apart from a few pictures i can't really find a demo video of it so that tells me that we're looking at games and software that i imagine many of them are lost to time
1: some of them maybe
0: especially if you just have a basement programmer a bedroom programmer who goes hi guy here's five copies of my game 15 were ever made
1: yeah and there was a lot of that going on and there probably are some lost ones from this time period You know, the ones that ended up hitting big then hit big and and got mass-produced more. But I'm sure there are some that were very local like this that just got lost, absolutely. Rimmer sees super-invaders in early 1979. He sees that it's barely anywhere in the country, but he also sees that it really should be a big hit. He's already been thinking about getting out there and being an entrepreneur again. Doing something with distributing something related to computers more efficiently across all of the stores that are out there. So he decides that this game, Super Invaders, is going to be his vehicle. With the help of the manager of the uh, Computer Land in Lawndale, who he has a great relationship with, because he has great relationships with all of these guys, he gets in touch with the importer of the game, a guy named Simon Wu. Simon Wu just has an import-export company where he's bringing in stuff from Asia to sell in the United States. His main business at this exact time, he has a general import-export business, but the biggest thing that he's working in at this exact moment is exotic birds, importing exotic birds from Asia. The computer game thing is basically just a side business. I mean, it's almost an afterthought. That's part of the reason why it only has a little bit of distribution. The company that made the game is not, or the person who made the game, it may not have even been a company in Japan, the maker of the game is not the one that is selling it in the United States. It's an import-export company. Astar International. So Remers is able to get in touch and is able to secure the rights to the game for Northern California and has the ability now to put out this game himself. He founds a company around this by the name of California Pacific. The name, very simply, comes from the fact that he's in California. By this time, he's actually no longer in San Francisco. He's living in Sacramento, which is where the company will be based. He is importing stuff from Asia across the Pacific. California Pacific. That's where the name comes from. Simple as that. He is very insistent because right now the game is only on cassette, he's very insistent that as part of the deal, the game needs to be converted to floppy disk. This isn't just because floppy disk in general is a better storage medium than cassette tape, which of course it is, but it's really because he could see that cassettes were just way too easy to pirate. Now, floppy disks are pretty darn easy to pirate too. You and I know this, but if you have a floppy disk you can at least attempt to do copy protection on that floppy disk. Cassette tape, no. <laughs> There's no way to copy protect a cassette tape because of the way cassette tapes work. He insisted that it be converted to floppy disk. By this point, you know the Apple II disk drive that Steve Wozniak had created is out and is gaining popularity. It's uh, viable in the United States, unlike in, say, Britain, to have a computer software industry that is primarily floppy disk-based rather than cassette-based. By having it on floppy disk, he can copy protect the thing. He releases Super Invaders on uh, floppy disk, and it's a big hit. It's, it's one of the very first big Apple II computer game hits. I think part of the reason why it becomes such a big hit, I mean, it is a faithful, uh, as faithful as possible on an Apple II. I mean, when I say faithful, of course, it's not arcade perfect. But it's a solid port of the hit arcade game Space Invaders to the Apple II. Space Invaders Mania is taking over at this time. Rimmers, because of his connections, is able to actually get this thing in lots of stores, not just eight stores or something like that. Right out of the gate, he has a big success, which is probably the first really big— I mean, we don't have sales figures on things this far back. Super Invaders was probably the first game on the Apple II that really sold fantastically well. I mean, there had been other games that had been successful probably before that, but success is just measured on, you know, did I make a little money on it? And when you had small-time operations with the bedroom programmers, selling a small number of games would be enough to be a little successful. So it's not the first successful game, but it's probably the first kind of killer app computer game that was on an Apple II. California specific was the company to do it. Once he got established in there... He wasn't necessarily planning to just be a computer game company. He decided to get into the CPM market. Just as the S100 bus was one of the first hardware standards in microcomputers, CPM was the first operating system that kind of became a de facto universal standard on early computers. Or to be more exact, early computers running Intel processors. Because CPM from Gary Kildall and his company Digital Research was basically the first disk controller that was created to work with an Intel processor. He had ends with the guys at Intel, and so he created something very quickly. Basically, if you had an early computer, an early hobbyist computer like some of these or small business computer, and you wanted to use a disk drive with that computer, which would require an operating system, you Probably had CPM on your machine if you were an Intel-based machine, which these S100 computers tended to be because the Altair was an Intel-based machine. So CPM was kind of the gold standard on a lot of these systems. It, it faded away very quickly in the early 80s, the very famous story about how when IBM was putting together the IBM PC, they wanted to outsource the software to get to market quickly. And so they went to the leading language company, Microsoft, and the leading operating system company, Digital Research, about creating the basic language and the operating system for the computer. Gary killed all for whatever reason— there are multiple explanations, but for whatever reason, he kind of blew them off, refused to sign a non-disclosure agreement, didn't meet with them, got IBM all concerned, and then when they came to Microsoft, Bill Gates was like, oh, and by the way, we can do the operating system for you too, honest. You know, then they bought a pre-existing operating system, QDOS, turned it into MS DOS, and the, uh, the rest is history, and so was digital research, even though it took a few years for them to go out of business, that was the end of them being dominant. Right here in this period, 1979, 1980, when we're talking about CPM was still the gold standard, and so Rimmers got himself the rights to some CPM software as well and decided to push that software. Because kind of the early CPM community on the West Coast was really based in the Bay Area, he decided to open an Oakland branch office of the company. The CPM product never went anywhere. The Oakland office actually closed after a very small period of time, and we were just back to Davis, California, near Sacramento, where Rimmers was based. The important thing that happened during this brief period, when they were up in the Bay Area, is that he was looking for people to copy-protect super-invaders. He was interfacing with people in the Bay Area, and one of the people that he came across in his quest to copy-protect super-invaders was a gentleman by the name of Bill Budge. That name sounds familiar. Absolutely. We've, of course, talked about Bill Budge before, most notably in our Six Children of EA episode, because his pinball construction set was one of the six launch titles of Electronic Arts and was far and away the most successful of those six launch titles, which is why we also talked about it in our recent, uh, at the time of this recording, 100,000 for 100,000 series of episodes, because it was all over the place there. As a massive seller, Bill Budge was one of the first kind of legendary programmers in the Apple II computer scene. The reason that he became one of the first legendary programmers in the entire Apple II computer scene was entirely because of our friend Alvin Rimmers here and his company, California Pacific. Budge did not end up taking the copy protection job on Super Invaders. But because they had talked, they kind of stayed in touch. And because they had an Oakland office, and he was based in the Bay Area, they were able to stay in touch with him because they were in close geographic proximity. Bill Budge had already released a game through one of these earlier regional mail-order-ish kind of companies that we had previously talked about called Stoneware. He had already released a game. Rimmers was impressed with him, and Rimmers convinced him that he could get a better reach for his product, do a better job, get more money, get more success by going through California Pacific for his next game. He was able to lure Bill Budge to the company, and that might not have even been possible if they hadn't had the Oakland office. So even though the Oakland office was very short-lived and didn't play a big role in the company overall, it may have been very important to getting Bill Budge into the company. Rimmers, as I said, he's not the tech guy himself. He's the marketing guy. He's the entrepreneur, and he knows this. So he kind of does the electronic arts thing before electronic arts does. He doesn't go all out with the big splashy ads and can a computer make you cry and all of that kind of thing. But he recognizes, mostly drawing from the book publishing business, though when he would talk about it in the press, like he did in the Soft Talk article, he would also reference the movie business. But he told me it was really the book publishing business that was his model. When somebody buys a book, they're not buying a book because Penguin published it or because HarperCollins published it. They're buying a book because John Grisham wrote it. They're buying a book because Dan Brown wrote it. They're buying books for the authors. They're not buying books for the publisher. Speak for yourself. Sometimes I bought them because of the pretty covers. (laughs) Well, sure. There's also the aspect of when you're in the store, the packaging and the design Nobody's buying because Collins published it, because Penguin published it. If it's a specialty imprint, like a science fiction imprint, like a Tor Books, maybe you go peruse all the Tor Books because you know they do fantasy and you want to see what else they have going. In general, you're buying the author, or the cover, you're not buying the publisher. So he decided that he was going to put his game programmers, whenever possible, front and center. For some of the Japanese stuff, that wasn't always very possible because these are independent programmers in Japan, and then he's getting the product brought overseas through Astar International, and then he's kind of distributing it. He can't do that with everybody, but with someone like Budge, he's going to promote them. So he decides to do a very high royalty, like a 30% royalty. He wants to take care of his programmers. He's going to give them a very high royalty, and he's going to promote them as the creators of the games which was unheard of at this time. I mean, it's, it's not like the console industry with Atari and Mattel, where they're deliberately keeping the programmer's name secret. But in general, the game authors aren't necessarily being promoted. I mean, it might say that this game is by so-and-so. It's not that they're not getting credited at all, but there isn't a complete focus on the programmer as the star. It's, hey, here's the great products from PowerSoft, or here's the great products from SoftTape. It's not, here's the latest hot product from Bill Budge.
0: To take your book analogy further, it's sort of like how you notice with some authors when you peruse books, the author's name is in bigger, larger, more prominent font than even the title of the book.
1: hmm Absolutely. He signs the deal with Budge for his next game. It just so happens that at the time of this deal, Bill Budge had three arcade-style games. Because in this very early day, uh, you know, there were a lot of arcade clones that were making the rounds and were successful on computers. He had three arcade-y style games that were near completion. So he basically said, okay, I'm going to do my next game through you. I've got three near completion. Choose one. I choose Game B. <laughs> These three different programs were a game called Night Driver, which is basically a clone of the Atari arcade game, Night Driver. There's a game called Space War, which is kind of a take on Space War. And then there's a pinball game, a very simple pinball game. So it's like, okay, these are the games. What do we do? Rimmers decides, okay, let's do all of them. Let's not just pick one, let's put them all together on a single disc at a single price. Basically, the price three games for the price of one. So they do Bill Budge's. Trilogy of Games. That's what they call it. Bill Budge's Trilogy of Games. Just like you had Sid Meyer's Civilization in 1991. We're actually putting the author's name in the title of the game. If you look at the cover for this thing, it says, California Pacific Computer Presents Bill Budge's Trilogy of Games. Exciting action menu driven. Night Driver, Pinball, Space War. This right here, I mean, like I said, it's not necessarily the first time a software author has been promoted, but it's one of the first times. Right here is one of the very first times that we're putting the game designer ahead of the publisher, even though the publisher's name is still on there. And we're emphasizing the author almost as much as we're emphasizing the product. This was the start of Bill Budge's journey to become one of the early Apple II legends. People knew who he was. Because California Pacific did this. It's a massive hit. Again, we don't really have good sales figures for this time period, but Soft Talk reckoned it had to be one of the top five selling programs of 1980. And they're charging $29.95 for it. Yeah, it's, it's a good price. I mean, they're charging full price. You know, they're getting it into stores because he has reach. He has connections with bite shops and computer lands and little mom and pop shops around the country. We're getting real retail distribution of this stuff. It's not just mail order. It's not just in five or six stores. It's all over the country. It's being sold at a full price, but you're getting three games, and it's publicizing the author, making sure that you know who did this. As Remmers himself said to me, in hindsight, it may not have been such a great idea to publicize the authors so much for his company. I mean, it was great for the authors, but Because he didn't have them signed to long-term contracts, he could end up promoting an author who then takes their fame and goes someplace else, which is certainly what Budge ends up doing, because uh, we'll get there, but Budge goes off on his own. It's kind of the beginning of that, before Electronic Arts did it. It's very successful. The product is very successful. So then, because that game is successful, they do it all over again. Bill Budge creates four more simple arcade-style games. Asteroid which is a clone of the very popular arcade game Asteroids, Death Star, which is kind of based on the Star Wars Trench Run, Tail Gunner, which is a port of the Cinematronics game, arcade game, and Solar Shootout, which is sort of a little Space War-like again. Then they release these four games as Bill Budge's Space Album. Budge is great at this stuff. Budge is making some really good, simple arcade games. So Budge is getting a name for himself. As the soft talk article says, and as Rimmers kind of also said to me when I talked to him, I mean, at this point, nobody can really name what a California Pacific is, even though California Pacific's name is also on the packaging. Nobody really knows the California Pacific Computer Company, but everybody knows who Bill Budge is, and everyone wants his products. They end up releasing a utility program by Budge called 3D Graphics Package. And again, it's just because these are tools that Budge had created for himself when he was making his games. But now that Bill Budge is such a big name and Bill Budge games are such a big deal, Remmers figures that they can release this stuff as Bill Budge's 3D graphics package and it'll sell too. And it does. Just to
0: convey how good of a programmer this guy is, I am looking at an emulation of the Apple II running... California Pacific Computer Presents Bill Budge's Space Album. Uh The title screen shows literally a space shuttle going around the planet Earth with occasionally a little space invader comes by and gets shot. But this is very, very smooth. I don't think I've ever seen a Apple II thing this smooth. You got something where you got the space shuttle getting a little bit smaller as it's further away from you. It gets a little bit bigger when it's close to you. It's very impressive for a title screen.
1: It's from 1980. We're only in 1980 here, three years after the release of the Apple II.
0: I'll put a link in the show notes to this so that you guys can check it out. It is pretty impressive.
1: Exactly. Super Invaders was one of the big games of 79. It was released by California Pacific in October of 1979, to be exact. Bill Budge's trilogy is released in December 1979. It's really, for all intents and purposes, a 1980 game because it came out right at the end of the year. Bill Budge's Space Album comes out in March 1980, and in July, he gets another game from Astar International, follow-up on Super Invaders, a port of Head-On, the popular arcade game Head-On, which is released in July 1980. Soon after that comes the 3D graphics program. In October 1980, Softalk releases its first bestseller poll. Now, these are not sales figures. This is just polling retailers to see what they say is hot. So you can't read these as absolute sales rankings, but the Softalk poll is a good indicator of what is popular around the country on the Apple II. In this first top 30 poll, all three of Budge's programs, plus head-on, are in the top 30. You know, Super Invader is old enough that it doesn't crack the top 30 at this point, but it was huge at the end of 1979 when it came out. So California Pacific has a lot of the major early hits in computer games on the Apple II. I mean, they're going places. And part of the reason is that he's found these good programmers. Part of the reason is that he's promoting these good programmers well. And part of the reason is that he's just got A retail distribution that, while it isn't 100% completely as sophisticated as it's going to be even one or two years from now in the industry, is well beyond what people had in 1978, 1979, before California Pacific came on the scene. This is some real success going on here. As a result of this success, he's also able to start distributing the programs of some of the other early publishers that are popping up. We've talked before about how friendly the early computer game industry was, particularly the companies that were all clustered in Northern and Southern California, like Sierra Online and Broderbund and Sirius Software, etc. Well, because Rimmers is one of the few people that has a real honest-to-God kind of national distribution going on, both Sirius Software— which was the home of one of the other early programming superstars on the Apple II, Nasir Gabelli, whom we've also talked about before in this context, as well as SSI Strategic Simulations, the wargaming computer gaming company uh, founded by Joel Billings. Both of them give California Pacific non-exclusive rights to their products as well which means that they're still selling them on their own. They're still under the SSI label, they're still under the Sirius Software label, and they're still doing their own direct sales, they're selling to retailers direct, they're selling to distributors, whatever. But they're also letting Al Rimmers sell on their behalf for a cut of the profits. Now, does this mean that
0: they change the actual programs themselves a little bit? Because instead of SSI,
1: they say maybe California Pacific presents blah, blah, blah. No, absolutely not. This is more akin to what EA was doing with affiliated labels. Now, it's not an affiliated label program, because affiliated label programs, EA had the exclusive distribution rights to those games. But it's more similar to what EA later did with affiliated labels, which is where Rimmers is serving as the distributor of the product. They're not changing it. They're not putting California Pacific on the packaging. They're not doing a special edition for California Pacific. They're not changing the title screen to put California Pacific's name in it. It's just because Rimmers is, at this point, just about the only guy in the country that has a good, solid national distribution network across multiple computer stores. Companies like Sirius and SSI that are small organizations that don't have that same reach are going to Al Rimmers and saying, hey, we know that you are able to move product all over the country. We're having trouble doing that. We'll let you sell some of our product along with your product, and you can you know, take your cut, obviously, for doing the sale. That gives our products a greater reach through your network. But unlike, say, an EA-affiliated label program, it's a non-exclusive right. It's almost like California Pacific has one foot in publishing and one foot in distribution. Exactly. They're promoting artists. I mean, this is so close to what Electronic Arts became. That's what's wild about it. There is another universe potentially out there somewhere where California Pacific becomes Electronic Arts instead of Electronic Arts becoming Electronic Arts.
0: EA gets eaten up by California Pacific.
1: Because there's so many similar things going on. Now, we're going to go into the reason why California Pacific did not become Electronic Arts in just a couple of minutes here, a little later down the line. There's very good reasons why that didn't happen, and we'll get to those. Here at the height of their success in 1980, you can see how they are blossoming. They're promoting the artists. They're getting Bill Budge's name out there. They're getting distribution rights to other games. They're expanding their network. They're doing a great job. And it's because of this that they also end up creating lord british that's right kids ultima wasn't always made by origin systems that's right now we won't of course go into the creation of a Calibath and ultima here we did that we did a trilogy of trilogies or rather i did a trilogy of trilogies with this suspicious guy called the guardian that popped in to replace jeffrey for a while he's gone now jeffrey's back but yeah that happened i had to take a three-week break We won't go into the creation of Ultima again, but we will reiterate the story of how those games got a national profile again from the perspective of California Pacific, which, of course, we did talk about in those episodes. Akalabeth, which today is often referred to as Ultima Zero, even though it wasn't conceived as part of an overarching Ultima universe, Akalabeth was just another one of these games in the exact same vein of some of the games that we were talking about earlier here in the early microcomputer market. Local kid falls in love with computers. Local kid makes game. Local kid goes to local store and says, hey, I've got a game. Why don't you put it on your shelf? Local store, in this case, a Computerland store in Houston, Texas, where Richard Garrett also worked, put the game on the peg wall in its little Ziploc baggie on its little cassette. It sold, in Richard Garriott's own estimation, about eight copies right out of the store. That's the only place in America a Calabeth existed, was in the Houston Computer Land. But the owner of the Houston Computer Land, John Mayer, of course, did business with California Pacific. All of the Computer Lands did business with California Pacific, because Alvin Rimmers knew all of those guys from back when he was a salesman at these various hobbyist computer companies he worked for. So John Mayer sends a copy of a Akalabeth because he thinks it's kind of cool to Al Rimmers and was like, you should look at this. It's pretty cool. Al Rimmers agrees and ends up flying out Richard Garriott and ends up doing a deal to actually release the game for real across the country. This is one of those things that we weren't quite sure on when we did the Ultima episodes. People that listen to those episodes may recall that we said we didn't know exactly 100% how a Calabeth got to California Pacific. Richard Gary has speculated that maybe somebody pirated it and sent it to them. Uh, he speculated that somebody bought a copy, and somehow one of those eight copies that were bought ended up on the desk of California Pacific. And then John Mayer actually just being the middleman and introducing has also been mentioned. We still can't necessarily say 100%, but Al Rimmers did confirm that he wasn't 100% certain, but he's pretty positive his memory is that John Mayer served as the go-between. So I I think we can pretty safely say it was always the most logical story. It's always the one that made the most sense to me. And now that we have Al Rimmers' recollections on top of the other anecdotal evidence— I think it's pretty safe to say that John Mayer is the real hero here, because since he did business with California Pacific, he sent a copy, and then California Pacific Rimmers was interested, and they published it. They decide to publish a Calabeth. They decide to have a little fun with this. They want to promote the author again. But Richard Garriott kind of doesn't want to use his own name. And as Al Rimmers remembers it, this is slightly different than maybe Richard himself has portrayed it. Who knows? But as Al Rimmers remembers it, Richard Garriott wanted to use his SCA name, Society for Creative Anachronism name, Shimino, which we talked about in our Ultima episodes. And Shimino is a character that appears in the Ultima games because it's his alter ego name. So according to Alvin Rimmers, Richard Garriott actually wanted to publish it as Shimino which Rimmers wasn't too enamored with. And he says it was actually his idea to publish it under the name Lord British. Richard did have that nickname going back. You know, he was called British. We talked about that story in one of our Richard Garrett episodes where he was at a summer camp for smart kids, and, you know, someone came into his room and, you know, said, hey there, or whatever, and he said, hello. And the kid was like, hello? Nobody says hello. You sound like you're British, so you're going to be British. That was his nickname going back, but it wasn't the name that he wanted to use as his author name right away. It was Rimmer's that convinced him to use the Lord British name. So they decided to have fun with it. They published a Calabeth by Lord British, and then as a promotional thing, they ran a contest in Soft Talk magazine, and this was Rimmer's idea. He contacted Soft Talk and did it with them. They ran a contest in Soft Talk magazine where they wanted people to guess who Lord British was, the real identity of Lord British. They were going to drop a series of clues over several months to see if people could write in and guess who Lord British was. Turns out nobody won the competition, because, I mean, that would be pretty remarkable if anyone did, because he wasn't an established person. He wasn't like Bill Budge, who had already written a game and published a game before he came to California Pacific. Richard Garriott was completely new to this whole thing. So it's not surprising that nobody actually won the competition, but winning wasn't the point. The point was they generated hype for Akalabeth, with this competition, and they cemented this idea of Lord British and the famous Lord British in the minds of Apple II users. It's really no exaggeration to say that Alvin Rimmers created Lord British equally with Richard Garriott, who is obviously the person behind all of this. Just like Bill Budge became a superstar because of... California Pacific's marketing of him, I think it's fair to say that Richard Garriott-slash-Lord British also became a superstar because of the way Alvin Rimmers promoted him. Akalabeth is fairly successful as well, and because Akalabeth did well, Richard Garriott goes with California Pacific for his next game, Ultima. So California Pacific also publishes Ultima, which is another big hit. The way that we've talked about this so far— You would think everything is beautiful and brilliant at California Pacific, and this company has no place to go but up, up, up forever. They have two of the biggest names in Apple II programming in their stable. They've released hit after hit after hit nonstop from late 1979 to early 1981. They've started distributing the products of other companies that have been successful, like Sirius Software and SSI, in addition to their own products. Life is good, right? I presume so, unless they decided to go public, in which case it seems like almost
0: all of these <laughs> things die.
1: No, they did not decide to go public. In truth, even though there was a lot of success on the surface, there were problems forming underneath. There were few different problems. Structural problems with the company, I presume. Some of them were structural problems with the company, some of them were structural problems with the industry. Even though Al Rimmer's was the first publisher to get more of a national profile, even though he had some non-exclusive rights to Sirius and SSI product that he was also distributing. He wasn't really a distributor. Even though he did a little bit of that on the side, he was primarily selling his own products. You're not really a distributor when you're only selling your own products. A distributor is a middleman that takes a lot of different companies' products buys them from those individual publishers, and then sells that product on to a retailer.
0: So I guess my earlier analogy of having one foot in publishing and one foot in distribution is wrong. It's more like one toe in distribution. Because he wasn't focusing on distribution, that was leading to a lot more problems for him because he had to be way, way more reliant on his own stuff being popular and working well, as opposed to going, Hey guys, come to me. Give me your stuff. I don't care what it is. If it's halfway decent, I can get it across the country. Exactly.
1: At the time he started, he was in a unique and valuable position because he was a publisher with a national reach at a time when computer game publishers just did not have a national reach. Fast forward here a little bit to the beginning of the 1980s, and you have the appearance of SoftCell, which was the first real computer game distributor. What Soft Cell was doing was buying from all of these different computer game publishers. Then, just like I was saying more generically, but just tying it in here, was going to these national chains like Computerland and to some of these mom-and-pop stores and saying, are you sick and tired of having 50 different computer game publishers call you up and telling you that they have the absolute best game and you have to order 50 copies of it right now? Are you having a problem as this publishing industry explodes, really figuring out what games are going to be hits and what games aren't? Yes. I would like to
0: just be able to order it, be done, sell it, focus on running my business, making sure those teenagers show up on time, and make sure that those same (laughs) teenagers spend
1: all their hard-earned money buying my games. Well, at SoftSell, we have a group of experts on the computer game industry. Experts! And we have already gone around to all of these publishers that keep assuring you that they have the best product. And we have evaluated this product for ourselves. We have picked the best products from each of these publishers, from each of these companies. Now you don't have to deal with 50 different receivable accounts. For 50 different computer game publishers, you can come to us, and we will offer you simply the best games around at competitive prices, and you can just place one order with us, and you're done. Johnny, who's in charge of distribution and
0: purchasing, you're <laughs> fired. SoftSell, you're hired.
1: Right. So SoftSell becomes that middleman. They become that buffer between the publisher and the retailer, which the retailers like, because they're not having to evaluate all of this stuff as closely to themselves. They're not having to deal with a dozen different companies or two dozen different companies to get product. They can deal with one company, soft sell. Obviously, once you get distribution involved, this is true in any product, distribution takes a cut because that's how they make their money. The publisher sells to the distributor for a certain price. The distributor generally doubles that price. I mean, it can vary by industry, by whatever. The distributor then doubles the price and sells it on to the retailer. And that's how the distributor makes their money. And then the retailer doubles that price that they bought from the distributor. And that's what you and I are paying at the retailer at the store is that uh, retail price. Now, in order to make sure that everybody makes their profit and that the consumer is still willing to buy it, that the price doesn't end up having to be, you know, $100 because that's what it takes for everyone to be profitable. The publisher at the bottom of this chain can only sell their product for so much to the distributor for this whole thing to work. Al Remmers, as we said, gave a very generous royalty to his software uh, programmers, designers, software artists, whatever you want to call them. He didn't call them software artists. That's an electronic arts thing, but we can call them that. It's a similar concept. After the royalty that he paid to his software artists— there was only a very small margin of profit left for California Pacific. If he had to give up part of his margin to pay the distributor, he would no longer be making a profit. California Pacific would no longer be making a profit on product. As Alvin Rimmers told it to me, he could not afford, literally, could not afford to sell his product to SoftCell. But once SoftCell and other distributors that followed in SoftCell's footsteps, became established with the retailers, with the computer lands, with the big chains, even with the smaller stores. Those stores did not want to do business with individual publishers anymore. It was in their best interest to do business with the distributors. They could get the best deals from the distributors. They had a lot less hassle. It was one and done, one receivable account. It was beautiful. So California Pacific started losing business to SoftSell and to other distributors. Stores were no longer interested in ordering product from California Pacific, but California Pacific, because of their cost structure, could not afford to send its product and sell it through soft sell. So they were kind of caught in a really bad situation here. That was a big part about the downfall of the company. Another problem was, again, that the stars were getting bigger than the company itself. This created some problems. So Obviously, Bill Budge created a lot of their very early successful programs. Well, Bill Budge and his brother decided that they were doing so successful, and they had such a name for himself, that they would form their own company to publish his games, called BudgeCo. So Bill Budge left the California Pacific staple of, of artists. I mean, he was never an employee of California Pacific, and he did not have like a written contract saying that all of his games had to go to California Pacific. He didn't do anything illegal or unethical. He just decided, I think my name is big enough now that I can... Just publish my own stuff, and I'll take a a bigger cut that way. So he and his brother form BudgeCo, and his next massive hit, Raster Blaster, comes out through BudgeCo. It doesn't come out through California Pacific. Then he ironically decides that publishing is a headache, and he really doesn't want to do that. And so then he gets courted by Electronic Arts, and Electronic Arts uses Budge as one of their main artists to get themselves established. In this period, he decides that he does want to publish himself, and he leaves California Pacific.
0: I just ran some rough numbers in order to sort of convey a little bit more of this information about how, let's just say, everything gets doubled. Mm -hmm. How little money California Pacific is seeing if it's doing a 30% royalties. Let's say that we go with our traditional thing of a video game is $60. That's MSRP. In today's money. In today's money. We'll say that half of that, 30 bucks, is what the retailer pays in order to buy the game. So that means that the distributor... It's paying $15 to get the game in order to send it off to retailers. Mm-hmm. Out of that $15, $4.50
1: goes off as royalties to the programmer. Mm-hmm. Then that leaves ten fifty. You have your production costs. You have your marketing costs. You have your payroll, your overhead. Yeah. That's not a lot of money. Exactly. He's getting crunched by the new distributor class. He's losing Budge because he did such a good job of promoting Budge as a big deal that Budge was able to use his own name to sell his games and didn't need California Pacific anymore. But he still has Richard Garriott. He still has Ultima, which is doing very well, and he's still got a follow-up to that coming Ultima 2. That brings us to the third and final reason for the difficulties, and one that we need to treat with some delicacy, and one that we need to tell a little more clearly than has been told in the past. Richard Garriott very famously also decides to break with California Pacific. Ultima II, of course, ends up being published by Sierra Online instead of being published by California Pacific. For literally decades— because Richard Garriott has been telling the history of the Ultima series for almost as long as the Ultima series has existed, literally for decades. The only side of this story that we've had as to why Richard Garriott left California Pacific is that he did not get all of the royalties he was owed on the game because the owner of the company was a cokehead who snorted away all of his profits. That seems a bit accusatory. Obviously, that's a big thing and that's a big deal. We didn't have the other side of this story at all because Alvin Remmers was nowhere to be found. So, of course, even though I knew this was going to be a sticky thing to bring up, I had to ask about this.
0: (laughs) That must have been a very awkward moment in your interview.
1: It was a little bit. I have to say Alvin Remmers was very candid with me and we had a great conversation and he was very candid about this situation as well. I want to talk about this with a little more nuance than the owner of the company was a cokehead who snorted away all of his profits. Alvin Rimmers, in his own words, was not good at delegating responsibility. Alvin Rimmers was California Pacific. His wife also worked there. His wife was a big part of the company doing well as well. It's not that he was the only person there. His brother also was involved for a bit, and they had some people that weren't family as well. He wasn't the only employee, but he was very bad at delegating responsibility. In a big way, he was California Pacific. He started working 16 to 18 hours a day, seven days a week on keeping California Pacific running. That is not sustainable. It is not sustainable, and it's not healthy. But in the short term, do you know how you sustain that? Lots of caffeine. I don't think caffeine is going to be potent enough, Jeffrey. It's stimulants. It's uppers, probably including cocaine. But even if not cocaine, other similar uppers pep pills that truckers sometimes take. In his own words, he, he admitted it, he did get addicted. Just like many people, he came into this innocently. This wasn't a case of, oh yeah, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, baby. It was an illness. That's how it's treated when you're in recovery. I mean, it's, it's an illness. It's not something that you're just doing. It's, it's not like he was going around all the wild parties and it's like, oh man, you got to try this. He, like many people that get involved with this, thought that there's no way he would ever become addicted. No, not me. I'm strong enough. I just need a little something extra because this company is consuming my life and it's taking all of my waking hours and I have to keep going. There are people depending on me. By the time he realized that he was addicted, as is often the case, it was too late because he's addicted. Much of his money was going towards his addiction, to feed his addiction. Much of his money was going there instead of paying rent, utilities, salaries, royalties, everything else. The structural problems with the company were also there. A lot of high-powered executives in the 1980s were big, powerful companies were doing cocaine. Those companies didn't go bankrupt. I mean, California Pacific, there were real problems there. There were real structural problems there. It was not just killed by his addiction. All of this stuff about how his royalties were too high, his cost structures were not in line, and he was losing business because of soft sell. That all is part of the story. We don't want to make this sound like it was just the drugs. In Rimmer's own recollection, Richard Garriott got 98% of his Acalabeth and Ultima royalties. The way he sees it, because he gave better royalties than most other companies in the business, even getting 98% of his royalties meant that he was probably making more money with California Pacific on those games than he could have made anywhere else. He's not saying that as an excuse. He knows that Richard didn't get everything out of the relationship that he took. And he told me that it wasn't just a royalty thing, that there were problems because of his addiction with meeting commitments and whatnot as well. They were supposed to have a meeting at one point at the airport in Houston. You know, Rimmers was supposed to fly in and he stood them up. He didn't fly in and show up for the meeting. So Richard and his father, you know, went there and and there was nobody there. I mean, the relationship suffered because of the addiction issues. And Rimmers himself acknowledges that. So he's not just saying, well, Richard Garrett should be happy he got 98% of the royalties. It's just that it feels a little overblown and a little unfair, though it's just Garrett's perspective. You have to understand, Garrett isn't living Al Rimmer's life. I mean, Richard Garrett is not being dishonest, and he's not trying to be slanderous. It's just, from Richard Garrett's perspective, he's very bitter because the relationship broke down and he didn't get all of his money because of a drug situation. I think I can sort of relate to this. One of my pet peeves is people who don't respect my time. Mm Mm-hmm sort of like, hey,
0: we sat down and set up a time for this, or you're supposed to communicate with me about something. Even if you have to delay it, just say something to me. I'm usually pretty cool with it. It's people who just sort of ghost me or don't show up for something or whatever. I get pretty annoyed about it. Absolutely. I want someone to show up and take a look at my driveway and repave it. And I call like two or three people. I take time off of work to show up, be there and wait for them. They don't show up then I get kind of annoyed. I took time off and stuff. So I can see from Richard Garriott's point of view is like, he has this professional relationship going on with California Pacific. He sees, hey, I'm not getting as much revenue in as I'm supposed to as per my contract. Maybe if that was explained to me of, hey, I'm having some issues here, We're not getting as much money as we would like. I need to help cover expenses. Can you just survive with, say, 98, 95% of what I owe you? Or he's having these meetings, like you said, where he's supposed to be meeting someone. He goes to the airport to meet someone. He gets stood up. Mm -hmm. If I was in that situation, I'd be very annoyed, very angry. And I would be, you know, why am I even wasting my time dealing with this guy if he can't communicate with me? He can't work with me on the issues he can't even talk to me he says hey let's do this meeting and i take time out of my day to go meet him and he doesn't show up why should i trust him with anything else
1: right i want to be clear i want to be clear that rimmers himself totally understands that he even specifically said to me that garriott has a right to his own feelings on this and and to be angry about this he's not trying to explain away in that sense it happened the image that you get when you get Richard's side of it, which again, Richard doesn't know everything going on in Al Rimmer's life. He's just telling his perspective of the story. When the only perspective on the story you have is Richard saying, oh, the company owner was a cokehead who snorted away the profits. I mean, that's, th- that's basically the exact language Richard used. It creates an image, a very different image, and a kind of malicious image of this high rolling druggy lifestyle guy, which is not what it was. He had an illness. It was an illness that began because of the extreme pressures he was under to run the company. It created problems, but it was not sinister. It was, say it. I think it's important that we portray it that way, rather than the slightly harder edge that Richard gives from his perspective. One of my favorite quotes that I try to live by, and I encourage
0: everyone listening to also take to heart, never attribute malice when incompetence can suffice. Absolutely. Life is very much like that. Something negative that happens to you, usually it's incompetence. Most people- Nine out of ten times are not being like, yes, I will do my evil thing just to make Alex suffer. <laughs> no, it's just like, oh, shit, I forgot about this important thing. Yeah, My bad.
1: Absolutely. You know, it should be said, I mean, Alvin, obviously, because I just talked to him last year, Alvin Rimmers is still with us. Alvin Rimmers has met his illness head-on, has dealt with his illness. He became a filmmaker. He's been involved in documentary films, a lot of stuff to do with space exploration, documentary films, and, you know, he's gone on to have a life. California Pacific is not the end of Alvin Rimmers. It's just that that was a particularly trying period in his life, and it was part of why the company failed, but it wasn't the only reason. When you put together losing top talent for various reasons, combined with the crunch from distributors and then with the habit on top of that, the illness on top of that that was the end of California Pacific. So, it had a very meteoric rise. It was a new kind of publisher. It introduced things that nobody else was doing. But then, because the early industry was changing so much, it ended up being eclipsed by the next wave of revolutionary, evolutionary steps that came just a year or two later. And so, it had a a meteoric rise and then a sudden fall. But it's definitely a company worth remembering, if for no other reason than Bill Budge and Lord British would still have probably gone on to have success, because, I mean, they were very talented people. I'm not saying that they owe all of their success to Alvin Rimmers, thank you very much, because, no, they were very talented in their own right, and they were probably going to find ways to be successful and to break through no matter what. But— we don't deal in counterfactuals. We deal in the way history actually developed. And both electronic arts and origin systems owe somewhat of a debt of gratitude to California Pacific for the way that he helped jumpstart those careers and jumpstart, more importantly, the fame of those individuals. That's why it's, it's definitely worth talking about and, and giving our attention to today, even though it, it lasted so short a time and then faded into obscurity. I, for one, am thankful for not having to do Shamino's
0: Ultima IV, The Quest of the Avatar. (laughs) Absolutely. (sighs) So we have had fun on the Pacific Rim. Let us leave this depressing
1: place and go somewhere else. Let's go someplace even more depressing, Jeffrey. Ooh, computer wars? Wars, yes, but not computer wars. Because war, Jeffrey, war never changes. You sure
0: about that? Because we got people with
1: clubs, then we got people with bows. Ron Perlman tells me, Jeffrey, that war never changes in the introductory movie to the classic post-apocalyptic RPG, Fallout. Ooh,
0: Fallout. There's mutants, there's Nuka-Cola, and bottle
1: caps are a wonderful form of currency. All with a very friendly, happy-go-lucky 1950s sci-fi aesthetic. Gotta love the 1950s, man. That's right. We've kind of been mucking around with some of these slightly more obscure computer game companies of the early to mid-1980s, like California Pacific and Spinnaker Software. So it's time to give the people something they've heard of again, Jeffrey. Certainly one of the biggest names in uh, RPGs even still today is Fallout. Fallout. We're not going to talk about the Bethesda games, the Fallout 3s and Fallout 4s of the world, but in a time when it seemed like RPGs themselves had descended into a post-apocalyptic wasteland known as the mid-1990s, Fallout was one of a couple of products that came along and really revitalized the computer RPG. It was a massive hit that also established Black Isle as a subsidiary of Interplay, which did such great things as Balder Gates and Neverwinter Nights in conjunction with Bioware to follow up. So it's a real inflection point in the revival of uh, the computer RPG in the West, as well as just being a really interesting and unique game at the time it came out. And there's been enough retrospective coverage of it, enough developer interviews on it, that we can certainly get an in-depth look at, at Fallout and probably go ahead and do Fallout 2 as well. But uh, not the Bethesda stuff, just the classic interplay original Fallout games in the
0: 1990s. Well, you just made my life a heck of a lot more difficult. Do you have any idea how hard it is to break into one of those vaults?
1: (laughs) Well, we'll see if we can pull it off, huh?
0: Alright, let me go buy a welder. (laughs) But you kids can see us next time, or hear us next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Alex's book, They Create Worlds: The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com Our Twitter is tcw podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.